So continuing our theme from last week, all get what they want. It is my contention in the scriptures, we read some of the scriptures last week, that everyone gets the kingdom they want to go to. If you want to be celestial, you will live that way. You will strive that way. And your kingdom will be obviously celestial. Those who go to the celestial kingdom, it's because they want to live in a celestial world. It would be an act of cruelty to send someone to the celestial kingdom who does not want to be there. And so Heavenly Father grants to us according to our desires. And life then is about figuring out what is it that you want. I love that Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church, called that the education of our desires. Do you want celestial things? Do you want terrestrial things? And so here we are in life trying to decide, what is it that I want? Which law do I want to obey? Now, one of the problems we have is that we use those terms, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, as kingdoms of glory. And I think that's part of the confusion is we talk about celestial things and we assume that if I'm struggling with celestial things, I'm going to the celestial kingdom. So for a brief moment, will you just separate those two? Every single one of us has to make our way through the celestial world. It's all around you. And we are born with a nature that desires celestial things. As an illustration of that, every temple has a celestial room. And you have to go through the celestial room. Now, the only way to get out of the celestial room and into the terrestrial room is to let go of everything celestial. And there's the test. Can you let go of everything around you that's celestial? It's everywhere. And it's appealing. Will you get yourself out of the celestial room by letting go of celestial things? And once you've gotten out of the celestial room and you enter the terrestrial, there's a great victory there. You let go of celestial things. Now the next step of the journey is, will you let go of terrestrial things? Or are you going to hold on to terrestrial and stay in the terrestrial room? Every temple has a terrestrial room. And your invitation is to get out of the terrestrial room. Let go of terrestrial things. And hold on to celestial things. That journey is like our journey through life. And I, I don't know how, but C.S. Lewis caught that. That I am here to wrestle with my desires. And my desires will keep me in the room or cause me to let go. So one of the great moments in the Chronicles of Narnia is the voyage of the Don Treader. Now, Eustace, remember, we've got Susan, Peter, Edmund, and Lucy, and they have a cousin. And their cousin is a young man named Eustace, and he is a cranky, old, little, not-so-nice kid. He's always whining. He's always complaining. He doesn't want to do any work. And tell me he doesn't personify a telestial life. It's all about him. 
Eustace is the personification in the early part. I think he's C.S. Lewis's personification of someone who just doesn't want to do anything. I just want to live it my way. And that's the telestial man. Now, uh, while they're journeying throughout the sea, they take damage to the ship. And they find a little port, and they're going to pull in, and they're going to rest, and they're going to fix the ship. And as they describe this, all the work they're going to do to the ship, Eustace is like, no way, not me. And so as soon as they dock, Eustace heads up into the mountains and falls asleep. Now, unfortunately, the mist has come in and he gets lost. So let me pick it up. Let me just read this whole chapter. Um, you came to Institute, now it's story time. At that very moment, the others were washing hands and faces in the river and generally getting ready for dinner at rest. The three best archers had gone up into the hills north of the bay and returned laden with a pair of wild goats, which were now roasting with fire. Caspian had ordered a cask of wine ashore, strong wine with Arkan land, uh, of Arkanland, which had, had to be mixed with water before you drank it, so there would be plenty for all. The work had gone well so far, and it was a merry meal. Only after a second helping of goat did Edmund say, where's that blighter Eustace? Meanwhile, Eustace stared around the unknown valley. It was so narrow and deep, and the precipices which surrounded it so sheer that it was like a huge pit or trench. The floor was gra gra grassy, though strewn with rocks here and there. Eustace saw black burnt patches like those you see on the sides of a railway embankment on a dry summer. Dry summer. About 15 yards away from him was a pool of clear, smooth water. There was a, for, at first nothing else in all the valley, not an animal, not a bird, not an insect. The sun beat down and grim peaks of horns of mountains peered over the valley's edge. Eustace realized, of course, that in the fog he had come down the wrong side of the ridge. So he turned at once to see about getting back. But as soon as he had looked, he shuddered. Apparently, he had, by amazing luck, found the only possible way down, a long green spit of land, horribly steep and narrow, with precipices on each side. There was no other possible, possible way of getting back. But could he do it now, now that he saw what it was really like? His head swam at the very thought of it. He turned round again, thinking that at any rate, he'd better have a good drink from the pool first. But as soon as he had turned, and before he had taken a step forward into the valley, he heard a noise behind him. It was only a small noise, but it sounded loud in that immense silence. It froze him dead still, where he stood for a second. Then he slewed around his neck and looked. At the bottom of the cliff, a little on his left hand, was a low, dark hole. The entrance to a cave, perhaps. And out of this, two thin wisps of smoke were coming. And the loose stones just beneath the dark hollow were moving. That was the noise he heard, just as if something were crawling in the dark behind them.
something was crawling. Worse still, something was coming out. Edmund or Lucy or you, or you would have recognized it at once. But Eustace had read none of the right books. The thing that came out of the cave was something he had never even imagined. A long lead-colored snout, dull red eyes, no feathers or fur, a long lithe body that trailed on the ground, legs whose elbows went up higher than its back like a spider's, cruel claws, bat's wings that made a rasping noise on the stone, yards of tail. And the line of smokes were coming from its two nostrils. He never said the word dragon to himself, nor would it have made things better if he had. But perhaps if he had known something about dragons, he would have been a little surprised at this dragon's behavior. It did not sit up and clasp its wings, nor did it shoot out a steam of flame from its mouth. The smoke from its nostrils was like the smoke of a fire that will not last much longer. The smoke, or sorry, it did not, nor did it seem to have noticed Eustace. It moved very slowly toward the pool, slowly and with many pauses. Even in his fear, Eustace felt that it was an old, sad creature. He wondered if he dared make a dash for the ascent, but it might look round as if he made any noise. It might come more to life. Perhaps it was only shamming. Anyway, what was the use of trying to escape by climbing from a creature that could fly? It reached the pool and slid its horrible scathy chin down over the gravel to drink. But before it had drunk, there came from it a great croaking, a clanging cry, and after a few twitches or convulsions, it rolled round on its side and lay perfectly still with one claw in the air. The little dark blood, a little dark blood gushed from its wide-opened mouth. The smoke from its nostrils turned black for a moment and then floated away. No more came. For a long time, Eustace dare not move. Perhaps this was the brute's trick and the way it lured travelers to their doom. But no one could wait forever. He took a step nearer, then two steps, and halted again. The dragon remained motionless. He noticed, too, that the red fire had gone out of its eyes. The dragon, sorry, at last he came up to it. He was quite sure now that it was dead. With a shudder, he touched it. Nothing happened. The relief was so great that Eustace almost laughed out loud. He began to feel as if he had fought and killed the dragon instead of merely seeing it die. He stepped over it and went to the pool for his drink, for the heat was getting unbearable. He was not surprised when he heard a peal of thunder. Almost immediately afterward, the sun disappeared, and before he had finished his drink, big drops of rain were falling. The climate of this island was, very un was a very unpleasant one. In less than a minute, Eustace was wet to the skin and half-blinded with such rain as one never sees in Europe. There was no use trying to climb out of the valley as long as this lasted. He bolted for the only shelter in sight, the dragon's cave. There he lay down and tried to get his breath. Most of us know what we should expect to find in a dragon's lair. Do you? Have you read the right books? But as I said before, Eustace had only read the wrong books. 
They had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains, but they were weak on dragons. That is why he was so puzzled at the surface on which he was lying. Parts of it were too prickly to be stones and too hard to be thorns. And there seemed to be a great many round, flat things, and it all clinked when he moved. There was light enough at the cave's mouth to examine it by, and of course, Eustace found it to be what any of us could have told him in advance. What's on the floor of a, of a dragon's cave? Not bones. Treasure. Now, see his eyes. Picture this moment when he discovers that he's sitting on a mound of treasure. There were crowns. Those were the prickly things. Coins, rings, bracelets, ingots, cups, plates, and gems. Eustace, unlike most boys, had never thought much of treasure, but he saw at once the use it would be in this new world which had so foolishly stumbled into through the pitcher in Lucy's bedroom at home. They don't have any tax here, he said, and you don't have to give gifts to the government. With some of this stuff, I could have quite a decent time here, perhaps in Kellerman. It sounds the least phony of these countries. I wonder how much I can carry that bracelet now. Those things that are probably diamonds, I'll slip it on my own wrist. Too big, but not if I push it right up here by my elbow. That's significant. He puts a bracelet on, doesn't fit, so he puts it all the way up here by his elbow. A gold bracelet with diamonds. All right. Um, then fill my pockets with diamonds. That's easier than gold. I wonder when this infernal rain's going to let up. He got into a less uncomfortable part of the pile where it was mostly coins and settled down to wait. But a bad fright when once it was over, and especially a bad fright followed by a mountain walk, leaves you very tired. Eustace fell asleep. By the time he was sound asleep and snoring, the others had finished dinner and became seriously alarmed about him. They shouted, Eustace, Eustace! Cooey, till they were hoarse and Caspian blew his horn. He's nowhere near, and he'd, uh, he'd have heard that, said Lucy with a white face. Confound that fellow, said, Eustace, said Edmund. What on, earth did we want to, what on earth did he want to slink away like that for? But we must, be do, we must do something, said Lucy. We must have, he must have got lost or fallen into a hole or been captured by savages or killed by wild beasts, said Drinian. And a good riddance if he has, I say, said Rince. Master Rince, said Reepicheep, you never spoke a word that became less of you. The creature is no friend of mine, but he is of the queen's blood. And while he is one of our fellowship, it concerns our honor to find him and avenge him if he is dead. I love Reepicheep. Oh, I love Reepicheep. Of course we've got to find him if we can, said Caspian warily. There, there's the nuisance of it. It means a search party and endless trouble. Bother, Eustace. Meanwhile, Eustace slept and slept and slept. What woke him was a pain in his arm. The moon was shining in at the mouth of the cave, and the bed of treasures seemed to have grown much more comfortable. I'm going to read that again. 
the bed of treasures had grown much more comfortable. In fact, he could hardly feel it at all. He was puzzled by the pain in his arm at first. But presently it occurred to him that the bracelet which he had shoved up above his elbow had become strangely tight. His arm must have swollen while he was asleep. It was his left arm. He moved his right arm in order to feel his left, but stopped before he moved it an inch and bit his lip in terror. For just in front of him, a little over on his right, where the moonlight fell clear on the floor of the cave, he saw a hideous shape moving. He knew that shape. It was a dragon's claw. It moved as he moved his hand and became still when he stopped moving his hand. Oh, what a fool I've been, thought Eustace. Of course, the brute had a mate, and it's lying beside me. For several minutes, he did not dare move a muscle. He saw two thin clouds of smoke going up before his eyes, black against the moonlight, just as there had been smoking coming from the other dragon's nose before it died. This was so alarming that he held his breath. The two columns of smoke vanished. When he could hold his breath no longer, he let it out stealthily. Instantly, two jets of smoke appeared again, but even yet he had no idea of the truth. Presently, he decided that he would edge very cautiously to the left and try to creep out of the cave. Perhaps the creature was asleep. And anyway, it was his only chance. But of course, before he edged to the left, he looked to the left. Oh, horror! There was a dragon's claw on that side too. No one will blame Eustace if at that moment he shed tears. He was surprised at the size of his own tears as he saw them splash on the treasure in front of him. They also seemed strangely hot. Steam went up from them. But there was no good crying. He must try to crawl out from beneath the two dragonous dragons. He began extending his right arm. The dragon's foreleg and claw on his right went through the exact same motion. Then he thought he would try his left. The dragon limb on that side moved too. Two dragons, one on each side, mimicking whatever he did. His nerves broke and he simply made a bolt for it. There was such a clatter and rasping of clinking of gold and grinding of stones as he rushed out the cave and he thought they were both following him. He daren't look back. He rushed to the pool. The twisted shape of the dead dragon lying in the moonlight would have been enough to frighten anyone, but now he hardly noticed it. His idea was to get into the water. But just as he reached the edge of the pool, two things happened. First of all, it came over him like a thunderclap that he had been running on all fours. Why on earth had he been doing that? And secondly, as he bent toward the water, he thought for a second that, he, that, that yet another dragon was staring up at him at the, in the pool. But in an instant, he realized the truth. The dragon face in the pool was his own reflection. There was no doubt of it. It moved as he moved. It opened and shut its mouth as he opened and shut his mouth. 
he had turned into a dragon while he slept. And now, I think one of the greatest lines, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. That, I have no idea how C.S. Lewis caught that concept, but that is one of the most profound observations I think he made. Holding on to celestial things, you become celestial. Holding on. If celestial things fill your heart, you become. You become what you want. You become what you hold on to. I th- I'm going to read it again. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. That explained everything. There had been no two dragons beside him in the cave. The claws to right and left had been his own right and left claws. The two columns of smoke had been coming from his own nostrils. As for the pain in his left arm, or what had been his left arm, he could now see what had happened by squinting with his left eye. The bracelet, the bracelet which had fitted so very nicely on the upper arm of a boy was far too small for the thick, stumpy foreleg of a dragon. There's that element. When I turn into something celestial, there's that element. I wondered if maybe that might have been C.S. Lewis's symbol of our conscience what fits so easily on the arm of a boy hurts incredibly when you've turned into a dragon. Now Eustace has a problem. He can't fly home and he doesn't, he doesn't fit in the boat. There's no way he would sink the boat if he tried to ride by boat and he can't fly home. So he starts to realize He's going to be left on the island. And he weeps. Until who's going to make his appearance? Who's going to come and help him? Now, beautiful little moment. Let's get to it. Um, Let me get up to the... Okay, let's do here. Um, how about we pick up here? Go on. Go on, said Eustace with considerable... With, uh, go on, said Edmund with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected. A huge lion coming slowly towards me. One queer thing was that there was no moonlight last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. 
You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut them tight. But that wasn't any good because he told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know. Now that you mention it, I, I think it did. But it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me. So I got up and I followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. And there was always this moonlight over and around the lion wherever he went. So at last we came to the top of the mountain. I'd never seen before. And on the top of this mountain, there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells. A very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything I thought I could get in there and bathe. It would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must first undress. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud. Take off the telestial. Take off the telestial. You've got to undress. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales be began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the water for my bath. Now, let me pause. This is a beautiful concept. I have turned into a dragon because of my greedy, telestial thoughts. And the Savior comes and says, undress. Now, what do I do? I peel off a layer. How many of you have peeled off a layer of the telestial and handed it to the Savior as if it's some great victory? Look, Lord, I peeled off a layer. Look at that nasty skin. I peeled off a layer. Now I'm going to bathe. He starts stepping towards the bath. Now tell me what do you think Aslan's going to say? But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and I stepped out and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well to bathe. Oh, you want more? You want more? All right. So I peel off another layer. 
Have you ever tried to satisfy Jesus by peeling off a layer of the telestial? And maybe a second layer. Is this, is this what you want, Lord? To just peel off a couple layers of the telestial? Well, exactly the same happen thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my legs. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the other two, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of its claws. But I can tell you, I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like Billy O, but it is fun to see it coming anyway. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the ghastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only I, it hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the other had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, I didn't much like that, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. Guess what's back? You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they have no muscle and are pretty mold, moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did something or another in new clothes, the same I've got on now. As a matter of fact, then suddenly I was back here, which it, which it, was, which it was makes me think it must have been a dream. Eustace, or Edmund then tells him, no, you've seen Aslan. But I just love that symbolism. We try to appease the Savior by peeling off a few layers of the telestial and handing it to him. It's only when we say, I'm yours, Lord. 
And we kneel down, fearing and trembling, and drink at the stream. And he's going to cut deeply, peel that out, and pull out the boy. May each of us give ourselves to him, endure that claw that often cuts deeply as it peels the celestial off, and then get clothed by him. That dragon skin, that hurt, versus the clothing he put on. How did a man who never went through the temple catch all this? I don't know. But I bear you my testimony. It's not worth it. There is nothing in the celestial world that is worth the dragon's skin. And you can't peel it off without him. You can't peel it off without lying on your back and saying, Lord, I give myself to thee. I bear you my testimony of that lion, of the Savior. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.